And now it's a great privilege to welcome Roy up. Let's welcome Roy as he continues our Jonah series. I also hear, got back to my ears, that um, there was quite a lot to swallow in last Sunday's <laughs> message. Well, today it's going to be a little different. There's going to be a lot to digest from the belly of the fish. But my prayer is that uh, rather than us uh, recognizing the great fish, as Hugh said last Sunday, that we recognize just how great our God is. Amen? I wonder, has God ever asked you to do something you just didn't want to do? Or which you struggled to say yes to? How did you respond to being faced with such a dilemma. Did you search your heart to discover the reason why your immediate response was no way? If you did, then possibly you discovered some issues of the heart, such as fears or maybe prejudices that were affecting your willingness to do what God was asking of you. I wonder, did you like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? wrestle in prayer until you came to a place of complete willingness to do God's will? Or did you respond as the prophet Jonah did when he rebelled against what God was calling him to do? Well, the story of Jonah, and I don't actually like the phrase story, but because it's, it's real, okay? It's an account. It's a historical account. But the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, which Hugh introduced us to last Sunday, can be summarized, and some high headings are coming up on the screen, as God requested Jonah to go and preach. He requested him to go and preach to the hated, long-standing Assyrian enemies of Israel in Nineveh, a city located some 800 miles east of Israel on the eastern bank of the river Tigris. It's actually opposite the city of Mosul in modern-day Iraq. Hugh spoke of their terrible brutality towards the, their enemies. And Jonah was called to the people to go there and to call them to repent from their wickedness. And we know from the prophet Nahum that also it included commercial exploitation and prostitution and witchcraft. And whilst God's request was to go and preach... Joseph, Jonah, sorry, let's get the right J. Jonah's reaction was to protest. God said, preach, Jonah protested at God's assignment. He protested inwardly and outwardly he did a runner. He ran away from his God-given task. And he headed for Tarshish in the opposite direction to Nineveh. And whilst this was not the most attractive of assignments and potentially dangerous more like being asked to go to North Korea, the country with the worst persecution of Christians, rather than, if I might say so, San Francisco. The real reason for Jonah's strong negative reaction is not immediately apparent in chapter 1 of the story. But from chapter 4 and verse 2, we discover that it was an issue of the heart. For when after the people of Nineveh had responded positively to God's message and turned away from their evil ways and God showed them compassion. Aren't you glad God always shows compassion? Jonah 
was actually angry with God for showing compassion. And he said to God, this is exactly what I said when I was still in my own country. It's the reason why I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. I'm glad he is. Jonah wasn't so much, you see, concerned about his own safety, nor, I would suggest, afraid of failing in God's assignment, but more likely he was reacting out of racial prejudice and an attitude that, quite frankly, he just did not want those wicked Ninevites saved. Well, to return to chapter 1, as we learned last Sunday, Jonah went down to Joppa on the coast and found a ship going to Tarshish, which at that time was the most remote Phoenician trading place. As Hugh warned last Sunday, when you rebel against God, you will find a ship. Friends, you'll find a vessel. You'll find something or someone waiting to take you out of God's will. Now, you would have thought, as a prophet of his stature, Jonah would have known that he couldn't run away from God. And in his love and mercy, God's response was to pursue Jonah. And this morning, he's pursuing some of you. He's pursuing some of our kids that are not here this morning. Praise God. As David says in Psalm 139, even if you go to the far side of the sea, God is there. There's nowhere where we can flee from his spirit. As Mike Betts said on his recent visit, you can run away from God, but you can't hide from him. And God knew where he was. And in his pursuit of Jonah, God caused a perplexing storm which was so violent that the ship was in danger of breaking up. And I would suggest to you, that's a good reminder not to be too quick to blame the devil for every storm which you might experience in your life. For, as it was for Jonah, it might just be that the Lord is trying to get your attention. The storm was so serious that the sailors panicked. They threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship, and in their attempt to save the ship and in their own lives... And they were so afraid that each of them turned to their own God for help. Ironically, the one who could have turned to the one true God who could save them, namely Jonah, he was asleep below deck. The sailors were of the belief that someone had brought such a serious storm upon them. And so they cast lots to discover who was the cause. And you know the story, most of you, the lot fell on Jonah. And so they questioned Jonah, and they asked him what it was he had done. And he admitted he was running away from the Lord. It's interesting to note the effect that actually had on unbelievers. And so they asked him what they should do to calm the sea. And he confessed, I know that it is my fault. And so the solution Jonah proposed was that they should throw him into the sea and after trying but failing to row to land, they reluctantly threw Jonah overboard. And they, these unbelievers, cried out to the Lord for him not to let them perish and not to lay on them the responsibility for the fate of Jonah. When Jonah was thrown into the sea, the storm ceased. And the ship's crew amazingly turned to the one true God whom we've been worshipping this morning. And verse 16 of chapter 1 tells us, they reverently worshipped the Lord and made vows to him and sacrificed to him. Meanwhile, in the sea, verse 17, 
tells us that God had prepared, the Amplified Version says, he'd prepared and appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The sovereign Lord's provision in this, on this occasion was the belly of a great fish where Jonah was for three days and three nights, which, of course, is a foreshadowing of how Jesus' life would be sacrificed to save not just a boatload of people, but to save people from all races, not from the effects of a serious storm, but from the serious effects of sin. And just as Jonah was entombed in the belly of a prepared fish for three days and three nights, so Jesus was put in a prepared tomb, in Joseph of Arimathea's prepared tomb for three days and three nights. But on the third day, hallelujah, he rose from the dead. Well, that's a summary of the story so far from Jonah chapter 1, particularly for those of you who were not here last Sunday. And today, we're going to look at chapter 2 to see what happened during Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. So let's read from Jonah chapter 2. The words will come up on the screen from the New International Version of the Scriptures. From the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Notice he still recognized him as his God. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, and yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. What a picture. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. My life was ebbing away. But I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. If your version says the love, cross it out and put grace. It's not a good translation you're using at that point. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Although some believe that a third person, a narrator, wrote the book of Jonah, most like myself believe that actually Jonah wrote it himself. And thus the verses that I've just read is Jonah's own recollection of how he was thrown into the sea and his utter despair inside the fish. And bearing in mind what a terrifying experience that must have been, his account, if you look at it carefully, is not in strict sequence in which the things occurred. For example, if you look at verse 2, Jonah speaks of how he cried out to the Lord from the depths of his watery grave before actually telling us in verse 3 of how he was hurled into the sea and how the waves and breakers swept over him. Now clearly, Jonah was hurled into the sea, verse 3, before he called upon the Lord from the depths of his grave, verse 2. And so the point I'm making is that the points 
I am going to draw out of Jonah's account are therefore not in strict sequence in verse order. But I believe that in these verses, in this account, if you like, that he was pouring out and his recollections, I believe, revealed there are some uh, four things which Jonah did. During what I believe was a time of contemplation for Jonah, he firstly considered God afresh. Secondly, he called on God afresh. Thirdly, he committed to God afresh. And fourthly, he celebrated in God afresh. It's noticeable that it was when Jonah had literally sunk to the very depths of distress that he took these actions. And it can be similar for us, friends. There could be people here this morning, there's been prophetic words that have hinted at that. There could be people here this morning that for Mother's Day for you is a painful, difficult time. For all I know, you could be trying for a baby at this very time and you're in distress. And it's at such times, it can be at such times when we've sunk in deep despair during particularly distressing situations which may or may not be due to our rebellion against God, it's at such times I want to urge you to begin to consider God afresh and to call upon him, to make a fresh commitment to him and to celebrate in him afresh. Now please, understand me. I am not suggesting that these four actions are some kind of guaranteed formula to get you out of desperate situations. But I do believe that they reveal some important principles to help us at such times as well as revealing something of how God was at work in Jonah's heart during that time in the belly of the fish. And during the storms of life, which we experience, when circumstances could cause you to sink into deep despair, whether that be of your own making or not, at such times it is vital, vital, where you turn your attention. It's vital that you turn your attention away from your circumstances and turn your attention to the Lord. And so let's look in turn at these four things that Jonah did. Firstly, Jonah considered God and his temple afresh. From chapter 2 and verse 3, we see that Jonah recognized that being thrown into the sea was God's doing. The sailors acted on God's behalf, although, of course, it was the consequences of Jonah's rebellion. Jonah faced up to the consequences of his action. His perspective, look in verse 4, was that he had been banished from God's sight, and yet, and yet, despite that, if you will, he says, I will look again towards your holy temple. And verse 7 says how Jonah recalled when my life was ebbing away, when I thought it was all over, I remembered you. This morning, if you're at such a desperate point, you think it's all over, I want to say remember him. Remember him. He's your fortress. He's your strong tower. He is your deliverer. During times of despair, choose to turn again to the Lord from whence our help comes. 
And sometimes, friends, that means giving ourselves a good talking to. The psalmist in Psalm 42, verse 5 says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? He's talking to himself. Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. In his desperation, Jonah said that when his life was ebbing away, he remembered the Lord, he looked again towards God's holy temple. I believe the Holy Spirit this morning is going to call us to look again towards the Lord. In the Hebrew, the Old Testament original text was in the Hebrew, and in the Hebrew there are two different words for the one English word to look. One is simply to take a quick glance, and the other is to take a lingering gaze or to ponder. And so when in the NIV, in verse 4 of Jonah chapter 2, it says that whilst Jonah was in the belly of the fish, he decided to look again. The Hebrew word is the word which means he began to consider again. He began to take a fresh look, to ponder on God's holy temple. It wasn't just a fleeting thought. It's the same word as what's used for, uh, earlier in the Old Testament when they were told to look upon the snake on a pole and they would be healed. The word there is to gaze, not to glance. To ponder. To take a fresh look. Not just a fleeting thought. Not just a quick glance. And from the wording of verse 7, I believe that Jonah began to remember again the nature of our God, that he's slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. For as he considered afresh God's holy temple, Jonah, I'm sure, would have remembered that in the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple built by Solomon was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the stone, stone tablets inscribed with the finger, by the finger of God, with God's commandments, with God's law. And on top of the ark, which was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold, was the mercy seat, also called the atonement cover, made from solid gold, which provided a covering over God's law. The furnishings of the Jerusalem temple were identical to those of the portable tent-like tabernacle built at the time of Moses. And each of them is a picture in some measure of Jesus. Specifically, the Ark of the Covenant is a picture or a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice for us that covered over God's law. Let me invite you this morning, not to glance, but to take a moment and to gaze to ponder on this picture of the Ark of the Covenant, which is on the screen. For I believe that as Jonah pondered on the Jerusalem temple, the Holy Spirit would have reminded him that the only basis, it was only possible to meet God on the basis of keeping God's law. You see, God appeared... His manifest presence appeared over the ark. He appeared, as it were, over the law. But of course, none of us can keep God's law perfectly. And so God's law was kept in the box-like ark and symbolically, I believe, covered by the mercy seat. As you could see, it was a cover on top of the ark. 
God recognizes that no one can keep his laws perfectly, and so through Christ's death, he has offered mankind his mercy and atoned for our sins, as was foreshadowed incredibly in the temple furnishings and the sacrificial system that you'll find outlined in the Old Testament. And because there's no remission for sin without the shedding of blood then on the day of atonement atonement was made for the sins of the people with the blood of sacrifice substitute animals sprinkled on the mercy seat and then the high priest could safely meet on behalf of the people with God in his temple once a year the high priest could experience the manifest presence of God who manifested his presence between the golden cherubim whose wings you see were outstretched over the mercy seat but hallelujah that is only a foreshadowing of something much greater. For as explained in the book of Hebrews, Jesus, our great high priest, has entered heaven's tabernacle, not by the means of blood, of substitute goats and calves, but with his own shed blood. Then we, as so that we, as believers' priests, can now have access to enter by faith into the Lord's presence at any time. Hallelujah. Oh, the blood of Jesus. Oh, hallelujah. The blood of the substitute animals was only temporary, provided temporary, but the blood of Jesus washes and cleanses forever and ever and ever. Hallelujah. Yeah, it's a good place for a hallelujah. The requirements, I, I don't know how to express it, and I've got to, care, I've got to express it carefully. The the requirements of God's law are covered with mercy. It's not that they're covered in the sense of being unimportant or done away with, but the law, the administration of the law, when God administers his law, he, he covers it in mercy. His mercy is new every morning. We sang uh, that old hymn just now, didn't we? That like floods of mercy. Uh, rains. Was that this expression? I've been driving around the last few days. There are floods everywhere. Puddles, we won't go into the potholes of Colchester, but you know what I mean. I just saw this picture. Flood, mercy, mercy. His mercy's new every morning. Hallelujah. The requirements of God's law, as it were, are covered with mercy. This was represented by the mercy seat's provision of a covering for the law in the Jerusalem temple. But it was ultimately brought into effect through the once and for all sacrifice for sin in the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our Saviour. There's a chorus of an old gospel song. My father used to sing it as a solo. I never understood what he was singing, but it came back to me when I was preparing this message. And it says this, Calvary covers it all. My past with its sin and stain, my guilt and despair, Jesus took on him there, and Calvary covers it all. It takes care of the fact that I'm a sinner and I just cannot keep all of God's law. That's not to trivialize it. It's not to take anything away. But his mercy covers. Hallelujah. When we come to him, we receive mercy. Now, of course, I am not suggesting for a moment that Jonah would have had the full revelation of this. But I believe that as he considered afresh the Jerusalem temple and of God's provision of substitutionary animal sacrifices, he would have realized surely that God is a God of grace. For he doesn't treat us 
as our sins deserve. And furthermore, from chapter 2 and verse 8, Jonah also concluded that to reject God and instead to cling to worthless idols, including his own self-righteousness, is to forfeit the grace of God which is available to us. Jonah recognized that unlike with other gods which are mere idols, grace is freely given by his and by our God. Aren't you pleased about that? Hallelujah. In the belly of the fish, Jonah considered God afresh as he contemplated on God's holy temple. Maybe he remembered the words of the prophet Isaiah. Come, let us reason together. Come, let us consider together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall become as white as snow. Hallelujah. Because that, friends, is how the grace of God is to undeserving people, including Jonah, including you, and including me, and your neighbours. Grace is one of the key attributes of God, and it's almost always associated with mercy, love, compassion, and patience as the source of help and deliverance from distress. It is the favour and kindness which is shown by God without regard to the worth or merit of the one who receives it and despite what that person really deserves. I don't know about you. I, well, I do know about you. I know what the Scripture says about you. I know what it says about me as well. I don't deserve the grace of God. And although we receive God's grace when we are saved, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is very clear, isn't it? That we're saved by grace, grace through faith, and it's a gift of God. It's not, we're not saved by our works. Nevertheless, it does seem that sometimes it is only when we sink into a deep, distressing situation, as Jonah did, that we then grasp more of God's grace. And we are then changed by the impact of God's undeserved favour towards us. When, for example, John Newton understood the grace of God, it changed him from being a merciless, faithless slave trader into a man of deep faith who wrote amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Grace is favour given to an undeserving one by someone who is not obligated to do so. It's being let into a place which we don't deserve by an unobligated person. When after many years Jacob returned seeking to be reconciled to his brother Esau, in Genesis 33 verse 8 it says that he was wanting to find favour. The word could be grace. He was looking for grace to be extended to him, even though he didn't deserve it, and nor was Esau obligated to show him such favor. Jacob wanted to receive grace specifically to be let back into the family. Maybe there's someone here this morning, you want to be let back into the family of God. Friends, you'll find grace, grace, grace. In a similar way in the parable of the prodigal son. When the wayward son had considered the nature of his father. He wasn't in the belly of a fish, but he was in the pigsty. And when he considered the nature of his father, 
a picture of God the Father. And the desperate situation he was in, Luke 15, 17 tells us that when he came to his senses and realized that he was better off at Father's house, and so then he returned in expectation of what? That he would receive grace of being let back into the family which he did not deserve nor which his father was obligated to give him because he had already had his inheritance rights which he'd squandered. However, when his father saw him in a distance returning home, Jesus said that the father was filled with compassion and he ran and to his wayward son and he received him with an embrace. What a picture Jesus gave us in that parable of God, our heavenly father, full of grace and compassion. Favorite song of mine, more modern ones, is you are who you say I am. And it includes the wonderful truth that in my Father's house there's a place for me. You don't realize how special that is for me. Because that in a nutshell is the grace of God. I don't deserve a place in God's house and nor is he obligated to give it to me. But he does. Oh, the grace of God. Matt Redman in his song, I Will Offer Up My Life, he puts it so well as well when he says, you opened up the gates of heaven and beckoned me in. Whoa, that is the grace of God. You see, although Jonah was a prophet, a spokesman for the Lord, he hadn't grasped fully the grace of God. It hadn't impacted him. Prophets, in my experience, tend to see issues very black and white, in black and white terms. There's no blurring of right and wrong with a prophet. And unless the grace of God has truly impacted them, then some can be in danger of coming over judgmental, and that's when they prophesy. They don't convey the heart and the grace of God. When God asked Jonah to go to be spokesman in Nineveh, Jonah's reaction revealed he had an issue of the heart. Proverbs 4.23 urges us, doesn't it? Above all else, guard our heart, for out of it, the New King James Version says, flow the issues of life. If you find you've got an issue with someone or something, look at your heart. Because issues come out of the heart. It wasn't that he was particularly afraid of going to Nineveh. But as will become apparent in future weeks when we get to chapter 4, the issue was that Jonah did not believe that the wicked people of the city of Nineveh deserved to receive the grace of God. You see, he hadn't fully grasped that no one deserves the grace of God, including him and me. However, whilst he was in his distressed state in the belly of the fish, he began to consider again the Lord. He looked again towards God's temple with its furnishings, which point to the wonder of the grace of God. However, how did Jonah, indeed, how do we receive the grace of God? Maybe today, for the first time, some of you are beginning to see more fully what the grace of God is all about. But you're asking, but how do I receive it? The second action of Jonah whilst in the fish, evident from chapter 2, is that he called on God afresh. Having considered afresh the nature of God 
and realize that God doesn't treat us as we deserve because he's a God of grace. Jonah called on God afresh for God's help, even though he didn't deserve it. (laughs) Hallelujah. His grace found him just as he was. You've just sung it. Verse 7 tells us, it's recorded there how Jonah recalled how incredibly his prayer rose to the Lord. And verse 2, he recounts how in his distress, Jonah called on the Lord. It says, from the depths of the grave. Figuratively speaking, the belly of the fish was his grave. He thought he was a goner. But he called for help. He says, and you listened to my cry. The Spirit of God at one point this morning was, was speaking through the worship time. He hears the cry of the broken. He hears the cry of the broken. That was the Spirit of God speaking. This morning, he hears the cry of the broken. He hears the cry of the desperate. He hears the cry of the grieving. And he, just as he heard Jonah's cry this morning, he hears your cry. He's the same today as he was at the time of Jonah. He will listen to and respond to your cry. We went on to prophesy this morning to speak out prophetically that he didn't just hear the cry, but he answers the cry. He answers the cry. He answers the cry. Because he's an ever-present help in times of trouble. Isaiah urges us, call upon him while he's near. Friends, he's near this morning. There's no doubting that. In Hebrews 4, the writer explains that because we have a great high priest in the person of Jesus who has gone through the Holy of Holies in heaven's tabernacle on the basis of his own shed blood, then verse 16 says, we can approach God's throne of what? Guilt? Condemnation? No, 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 no. We can approach God's throne of grace with confidence knowing that we will receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Hallelujah. You see, you receive the grace of God, if I can put it this way, by seeing it and asking for his undeserved help. God's grace impacts you when you grasp the height of God's mercy and recognize the depth of your own sin. Jonah considered afresh the nature of God and having seen afresh that he is a God of grace and mercy, he called out to God for his help even though he didn't deserve it. And friends, you can do the same today. And thirdly, learning from Jonah, at times when we're in a distressing situation, even if it's of our own making, not only do we need to consider God afresh and call on God afresh for his help, but we also need to make a fresh commitment to the Lord. Verse 9, we see from verse 9 that although nothing had changed outwardly in Jonah's distressing situation, he was still in his potential grave, the belly of the fish, but something had changed on the inside of Jonah from spending three days pondering afresh on the goodness of God. After three days, considering the grace of God, Jonah recounts how he made a fresh vow to serve the Lord in his calling as a prophet. Verse 9 records how he promised God he would make good what he had previously vowed. But friends, there's more because verse 9 also speaks of how Jonah vowed to sacrifice to the Lord with a song of thanksgiving out of seemingly a fresh recognition that salvation comes from the Lord and from the Lord alone. 
Now, I'm going to be very honest with you. From the tense of this verse, I cannot be absolutely sure whether he just made a vow to make a sacrifice in the future if God saved him from his place of distress, or whether actually he began to offer up a sacrifice of thanksgiving right there in the belly of the fish. Personally, I think it was most likely to have been the latter. For when you see the grace of God, when the eyes of your heart are open to grasp it, then you can't help but celebrate with thanksgiving to our God of grace. When you see it, you'll be impacted. My church background was Salvation Army. It was there where I was saved. We used to sing a song, this one thing I know. I didn't understand it at the time, but I understand it now. This one thing I know. God in great mercy pardoned me. Once I was blind to that, but now I see this one thing I know. Friends, once I was blind to the enormity of the grace of God, but I see it. I see it. Do you see it? God in his great mercy, you see, pardoned me. He pardons you, an unworthy sinner who does, does not deserve his favor, nor does he have any obligation to do so. It was whilst we were yet sinners, the Scripture tells us, whilst we were alienated against him, that Christ died for me and died for you. Man of sorrows, what a name. Hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior. What a Savior. While I was his enemy, he extended grace to me. You see, it's one thing to celebrate the goodness and grace of God after he's brought you out of your place of despair, but it's a higher dimension of praise when you give thanks to the Lord in the situation that you're in, no matter how distressing it is. Paul urges us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 to give thanks in all circumstances because he knew the difference that makes to you on the inside. And when he and Barnabas praised the Lord in their distressing situation whilst in prison, do you remember, not only did it change them on the inside, but the Lord caused an earthquake to save them. And in a similar way, it would seem that when God heard the praise of Jonah rising up from the belly of the fish, he commanded him to command the fish to free Jonah. And verse 10 says, the fish vomited Jonah onto God's dry land. God's grace found him just as he was. His majesty had found him just as he was and he extended to him grace, 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 grace. And if you are wondering, but how do I know if I have truly grasped the grace of God? Friends, the answer's there in verse 9 of Jonah chapter 2. For as was the case for Jonah, it will be evident in your thanksgiving to God for his salvation. During his time in the belly of the fish, Jonah had grasped more of the grace of God and he was now ready to respond positively, not to react negatively to God's repeated requests for him to go to Nineveh and proclaim God's message. You see, as we recognize during our last teaching series, when considering God's purpose of work. The assignments which God gives to us are not just what, for what will be achieved towards advancing God's kingdom, but they're also for what they will achieve in us towards conforming us to the image of the Lord. God had worked 
in Jonah during his time in the fish. Jonah had come to understand more of God's nature. He'd grasped more of God's grace. But as we will see when we get to chapter 4 in a few weeks' time, like each of us, Jonah was still a work in progress. For when the people of Nineveh turned back to God, and God therefore showed them compassion, and when, and he did not bring about the destruction that he had threatened, then we're told that Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. You see, he still hadn't fully understood and fully grasped the enormity of the grace of God. Like Jonah, I'm a work in progress standing before you this morning. But I tell you, I'm reassured from Paul's confidence expressed in Philippians 1.6 that he, the Lord himself, who's begun a good work in me, he will carry it on to completion. And friends, you too can have that kind of confidence that what he's begun in you, he will bring to perfection. Well, I hope today the Holy Spirit is being able to use me to help you just grasp more fully the amazing grace of God.